The following is a rebroadcast of Stratford University's Tech Talk. To hear Tech Talk live, tune in Saturday mornings at 9. You can find us on the radio on 1500 AM, 1045 FM, 1035 FM HD 2, 1039 FM HD 2, and 1077 FM HD 2. Or you can listen live online at federalnewsnetwork.com. Interfacing complete. Please stand by. Now downloading Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Tech Talk Radio, it's technology you can understand. And now here are Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We are in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. I'm Dr. Richard Schertz. And I'm Jim Russ. And it's been a busy, busy week in technology. The, the U.S. government is striking back at Russia for the solar winds hack. And they gave some details about how severe that hack really was. Now, the U.S. House Committee approves a blueprint to rein in big tech. Both the Democrats and Republicans think that big technology is just a little too powerful. And I think they're going to be looking at modifying the uh, Section 230 of the, uh, of the Communications Act. Now, there was a, uh, you know, Tesla has uh, cameras built in, and this crime suspect was slashing the tires on a Tesla, and he was photographed every step of the way. The police were able to get him quite, quite easily. And Google Project Zero is increasing the time to fix uh, window. Google uh, Zero, they go in and they try to find um, uh, uh, software errors that could uh, allow hackers to penetrate a system. And they were giving um, businesses 90 days to fix it before they actually published what the hack was. Now they're just giving a little bit more time to allow companies to fix whatever they had going on. Now, we're also going to feature in Profiles in IT... The man who developed the signal processing techniques between Wi-Fi and third and fourth and, and third and fourth generation uh, cell phone technology, and we'll just see how contentious the patent situation is when you develop a core technology. And of course, it was a huge, huge mail. There's a letter in your mailbox. We got an email from Ken Hutchinson. Thank you very much for the fascinating and inspiring profile of Catalan Carrico. She, of course, is the woman who developed the Messenger RNA platform that's being used for the Pfizer and the Moderna uh, COVID vaccines. I'd not heard of her before, but I should have, considering her fantastic accomplishments. Her brilliance, persistence, and ultimate monumental success uh, in the face of repeated rejection by ignorant, malevolent bosses, who we, we outlined in great detail Yes, last we week, did, painstakingly. As, as well as a lack of compensation for her work are beyond impressive. I hope she receives the Nobel Prize and hope that the men who doubted her and rejected her get the disdain and disrespect that they deserve. Ken Hutchinson. Well, thanks for the kind words, Ken. I like to feature hidden figures in all areas of technology. I mean, research is a team sport. There are many, many contributors, and many of those contributors actually don't get due credit. 
or compensation for their work. We got an email from Bob in Maryland. Dear Doc Jim and the soothing Mr. Big Voice, <laughs> it appears there's growing backlash against the Google flock. That's the Federated Learning of Cohorts. It's a controversial alternative identifier to third-party cookies for tracking users. Chromium-based Vivaldi browser has removed Flock from their support. The search engine DuckDuckGo last week released a Chrome extension to block Flock. I thought Flock was supposed to allow advertisers in Google to present ads to customers while disguising their individual identities. What's gone wrong here, Doc? All the best, your faithful listener. Well, Bob, as you would expect, flocks actually give Google a key advantage, and they allow them to make more money in advertising. Now, flocks place customers in groups for targeting. Now, that's good on the surface, because that means an advertiser doesn't know that Joe Smith likes to take Tylenol aspirin. They only know that Joe Smith is part of a group and that group likes to take Tylenol aspirin. And so they, 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 it, rather than the advertiser targeting Joe Smith, they just target the group of, of aspirin takers and Joe Smith gets the thing. And so his identity theoretically is protected with these federated learning of cohorts. Now that sounds really good in practice. Now here's the deal. Google, however, knows everybody. So it uh, turns out that only the other companies don't know the exact identity of the guy, but Google does. So if a company would like to target Joe Smith specifically, they have only one place to go, and that's Google. So this flock actually gave Google a significant competitive advantage, and you might expect they'll make more money with it. That's why there's so much backlash. We got an email from Arnie in Colorado Springs. Hi, Dr. Schertz. This regards your 41021 Tech Talk program regarding the Facebook hack. You gave a website where you could put in your phone number to tell you whether your account had been hacked, whether you were part of that group. But maybe the site that you gave us is hacked, and we're just setting ourselves up by putting our phone number in that site. What do you think? Arnie in Colorado Springs. Well, Arnie, that is a very good point. In fact, there's a lot of discussion on the hacker forums regarding this site. Uh, people are saying, why should I put in my phone number? I'm just, I'm just opening myself up. They had this big conversation. And I sort of read the whole thread there. And the consensus seems to be that it's not really that big of a risk. First of all, if the site were asking you to enter in your username and password to check if they're there, that would be stupid. You wouldn't want to do that. That'd be a dumb thing to do. But your telephone number, all you're doing is entering your telephone number. And uh, at most, the telephone number might be associated with your, uh, with your IP address because you haven't given them your name. Now, the guy doesn't get your Facebook ID, your email address, your interest, your password, or anything else. Now, you might say that he could look all that up in the... Um, hacked database to see what's there. But of course, he could look that up anyway, even without your phone number. So the fact is, you're not giving this particular website any, any additional information. So I think 
that it's actually a very, very, very minor risk. And it is kind of fun to look your phone number up to see whether your account's been hacked in that 560 million hacks on Facebook. I mean, I put my phone number in there and I discovered I was one of the hacked accounts. So I, I had to change my password. We got an email from Alex in Richmond. Dear Tech Talk, I've got a desktop computer and I hired a person that I hired a person to build for me about three years ago. It's got Windows 10 on it, four gigabytes of RAM, and I really like it. Uh, I'd like, however, to max out the RAM on the computer to speed things up a bit. How can I find how much memory this computer can use and you know how, how to upgrade it? And I called the guy that built it. I can't find him anymore. I don't know how to find him. So I don't have any information on my computer. I don't know what brand the motherboard is. I don't know anything. Help. I want to upgrade it, and I don't know how. Well, uh, Alex, there's really an easy site, crucial.com, C-R-U-C-I-A-L.com. I've covered this on the show before. Go to crucial.com, and there's a free system scanner utility, and you can, you can basically download it from the site, and then you click on that utility scan. It will scan your computer, and it will tell you everything. It's an amazing tool and very safe to use. It'll tell you the maximum amount of RAM your motherboard can handle. It'll tell you what kind of RAM you need to buy, how many sticks you already installed, how many empty slots there are. It gives you everything you need to know to get more RAM to sort of max out your system for maximum RAM. And if you want, <clears throat> you can buy it directly from crucial.com. They'll tell you, you could sell it right there. You don't have to go anywhere else and you'll get exactly the right RAM. Or <clears throat> if you wish, you could write down the specs and then go to Amazon to try to get a cheaper price. Uh, either way, uh, I, think it's, uh, I think you're going to be able to get exactly the RAM that you need. Now, by the way, while you're at trying to speed up your computer, I'd recommend you just uh, get rid of the uh, conventional hard drive and replace it with a solid-state hard drive, and then everything will be really speeded up. We got an email from Alan in Waldorf. Dear, Dear Doc and Jim, I work for an employer who's very, very, very security conscious. I've got to lock my Windows 10's computer every time I leave the desk, even if it's just to get a quick cup of coffee. And if I forget and they catch an open computer... I'm in trouble. Uh-oh. And sometimes I do forget when I'm rushed. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to get in trouble. Is there any way I can automatically lock my computer when I get up from my desk if I forget? Alan in, Wardorf, in, in Waldorf, Maryland. Well, Alan, Window 10 has a feature called Dynamic Lock. Dynamic Lock that'll automatically lock your PC every time you get up and leave the room. You don't have to touch anything. Dynamic lock works by pairing your mobile phone with your Windows 10 PC. And when if you got the phone in your pocket and you walk away, it can no longer pair with the phone. Bingo. Automatically locked. So this means, uh, you know, anytime you walk away, it'll automatically lock. You don't have to worry about it. And so, but you do have to remember to take your phone with you if you leave your phone by your computer, it won't lock when you leave. Uh -huh. Now, the thing is, I'll tell you, it, it, it's a multi-step process to set this up. First, you've got to turn on Bluetooth on your phone and on your PC, and you've got to pair them. So take your phone first, launch the app settings, select Bluetooth settings, and make certain that you can see the PC listed, the Bluetooth uh, uh, 
uh, transmitter on your PC listed in your in your cell phone when you're searching for Bluetooth connections. And if you don't see it, then go to your computer and turn on Bluetooth. Now, that means your computer is going to have to have Bluetooth, by the way, and, and most of the more recent computers do. Now, once you've got the Bluetooth turned on on both devices, you're ready to pair them. So log into your PC and click on the start button and then type the word Bluetooth and then select your iPhone from that list of Bluetooth devices. Click on it. Oh, well, you'll want to say add Bluetooth and then and then once you once you click on your mobile phone name, click next and then it will give you a password that shows up on the computer screen. You've got to enter that passcode into your into your phone and once you've entered the passcode into your phone, you're paired. Once you're paired to your iPhone, it's very easy to do. You simply now you have to turn on dynamic lock on the PC. So you click the start button and then you click on settings. That's a little gear icon. Then you click on accounts. Then you click on sign in options and you scroll all the way bot to the bottom of that window where it says Dyna dynamic uh, uh, lock. And you'll see a box that says allow windows to automatically lock your device. Check that box and then click save. Now dynamic lock is enabled, and anytime you walk away with your cell phone, it'll automatically log out. And I hope that solves your problem. We got an email from John in Fairfax. Dear Doc and Jim, some friends have told me to stop using Windows 7 now that Microsoft has stopped updating it because it's no longer safe. Now, I got other friends that say, hey, it's perfectly fine to use it as long as, as, long as you got an antivirus on it. Now, my HP laptop is old. It still works fine, even though it has Windows 7 on it. I really hate the thought of having to replace it, but I will if it's unsafe to use John in Fairfax. Well, John, if you're not connected to the Internet and you're just using it for Microsoft Word documents as a printer, uh, anything like that, without a connection to the Internet, I mean, it's perfectly safe. Nothing's going to be wrong. Nothing's going to happen to you. You can just use it to your heart's content. And, you know, the Windows operating system is really a nice operating system. I, I enjoyed it. I mean, I, I reluctantly gave it up when I switched to Windows 10. On the other hand, if you're connected to the Internet and you use it for the normal kinds of things that people use it for, like banking, bill paying, online shopping, social media, etc., the answer is definitely no, it's not safe. People could get into your bank account. They could put all kinds of things on your computer and you wouldn't even know it. They could put keystroke loggers, get all your banking passwords you see malware i mean you, you could have you could you could have the latest malware um antivirus installed on it and and malware is is only one of the threat vectors as they say that they could use to get into your computer and so maybe you'll catch any malware that they try to get but there's something called there's something called uh and, and if you got the greatest system there it's it's not going to be um, it, it it's it's it will stop malware. But there's something called day zero. These are these are actually exploits that uh, that nobody knows about in particular, and uh, and there's no and there's no malware protection against them. And uh, these hackers are always looking for zero day exploits, and they'll eventually find one because there are plenty of them out there. They just they'll discover them. And if there's a zero day exploit on Windows 7, it will not be patched, 
and maybe they'll exploit it before there's any antivirus software out there, and they'll go in there with that threat vector and take over your machine. So it will happen, and uh, so I would uh, either upgrade to Windows 10 or I would just stay off the Internet. Listen, we love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. You're listening to Tech Talk Radio. This is Federal News Network, and you can hear us in a number of different places on the dial. 1500 AM, 103.5 FM HD2, 103.9 FM HD2, in Loudoun County on 104.5 FM, and at 1077 FM HD2, southwest of Washington. Learn more about the programs at Stratford University, and learn how to attend there yourself by going to stratford.edu. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. Now it is time for... Profiles in IT. Yes, today we're going to feature Hatim Zaglua. Nicely done. Thank you very much. I worked on that all night. <laughs> Hatim Zaglul is an Egyptian scientist best known for his development of signal processing techniques that form the basis of Wi-Fi and CDMA cell phone standards. Those are the that's the cell phone standard that was really developed by Qualcomm. He was born February 7, 1957 in Giza, Egypt. Now, while growing up, Zaglul was always, he always displayed an interest in math and science. He was quite, quite good at mathematics. In 1979, he graduated a dual degree in electronic engineering from Cairo University and a, another degree in applied math from Ain Shams University. At the, while he was going to school, he served a year in the Egyptian Armed Forces. I guess there they only had to have one year of mandatory service, not two. And they allowed him to continue going to school. He worked at uh, Schumber's Schlumberger. 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 <laughs> Thank we, you, Jim. We, 
Well, you know, hat tip to Andrew who figured out that it, it looks like a German word, and it is, but they come from the Alsatian region, which is why you get the French pronunciation. Yes, Lumberger. See, it ends in E-R, so it would look like Schlumberger. Right. Schlumberger, but it's Schlumberger. Yes. And so we've been practicing on that one a little bit, too, and we had our research department check it out. Mm-hmm. He worked for Schlumberger Wireline Services. He was... They, they, Schlumberger is really in the oil business, an oil exploration business, making technology to support oil companies. And he worked as an oil well logging engineer from 1981 to 1983. Now, in 83, he said, you know, to heck with all this oil stuff. I want to move on. So he migrated to Canada and he start, and he went to the University of Calgary and he enrolled in the Master of Science in Physics program. And in 1985, he got his master's in physics. While he was at the University of Calgary, he uh, served as a teaching assistant. And actually, he continued teaching there until 1989, after he got his master's degree. I guess he uh, sort of liked the teaching world. But then he eventually decided, hey, I want to get into research again. So he was hired by uh, the TELUS Corporation, now, that was a Canadian telecom company, and they were developing telecommunications equipment. Now, he and a friend of his, who was a fellow Egyptian scientist, Mike Michel uh, Fatouche, they developed signal processing techniques that were used for both second-generation and third-generation cell phone communication. They, the, the, the goal of the company was to speed up the throughput. Now, he worked on two different uh, methods. One method was wideband orthogonal frequency division multiplexing, which would later become the uh, the foundation for Wi-Fi, as well as multi-code direct sequence spread spectrum, which had become central to CDMA mobile phone technology. So the one that was most important was this wideband orthogonal frequency division, where every different ch- uh, uh, channel is carried by a different frequency, and they space the frequencies in a certain way so when you do the signal processing on them, they do not interfere with each other. So each frequency can be viewed as an independent variable. Therefore, they are called orthogonal. Mm. Orthogonal means at right angles. And so if, like in a, in a coordinate system, you got X and Y at right angles. X and Y are independent variables because the axis is orthogonal. You could change X without changing Y. In this case, it's a multidimensional space that you can't really draw. And they have organized the frequency space, and so all the frequencies are orthogonal. Sorry for that sideline. No, it's but interesting. It, but it's a, it's, a, it's a very common way, and this is you know, a very common way to get more uh, throughput in a channel. Now, uh, he... Um, they, they, he and his friend developed these two techniques, and uh, uh, in 1990, uh, sort of independently, and they, because they felt they de- developed them on their own, they applied for a patent for both the techniques, for both the um, both the WOFDM wideband orthogonal frequency division, as well as the multi direct sequence spread spectrum. They applied for a patent both in the U.S. and Canada, and they got it. Now, in 1994, uh, Zogluo uh, received his Ph.D. from University of Calgary. And, and get, oh, of course, this is why I like the guy, Ph.D. in physics. So, you know, mm-hmm. that's why. Yep. I, so I was kind of attracted to him. Mm-hmm. Now, they wanted to enforce their patent. Now, this was the thing. This was a highly contentious area, and there are a lot of people that 
independently developed uh, signal processing techniques. And Apple, Siemens, Cisco, and all the key, key players, they said, to heck with you. We're not, we're not going to honor your patents, period. We're just not going to do it. Well, he filed many, uh, many lawsuits, and, and he won. He won the lawsuits, and by 2011, he had reached a settlement with nearly every company that was in this space, both in, uh, teleco both in uh, cellular communication as well as in Wi-Fi. And the settlement, by the way, $700 million. Wow. That was not bad. Now, a lot of people say they invented it first, but look, he, he won the court case and he got the $700 million. Now through, then as part of YLAN, that company they formed, they wanted this standard to be adopted. So they worked with the, we, the FCC Federal Communication Commission, as well as the IEEE 802.11 Standards Committee, and they got this signal processing technique approved as an official standard that could be transmitted over the 2.4 gigahertz band. And that became the a technical underpinning of Wi-Fi that we all know and love now for all of our Wi-Fi routers and Wi-Fi everywhere. So in the end, he also, uh, they Hatim Zaglul and his friend also developed, uh, you know, signal processing that contributed to both 3G and 4G. And they won settlements on that, too, as part of the $700 million. Now, in 1997, um, I mean, because they were, oh, let me talk about patents for a minute. Okay. There are very few people in, say, Asia or Arabian countries that, that really get patents for things, so they tend not to get it. And that's because in certain countries, they just don't honor intellectual property. So the people figure, well, what the heck? If, if, I, if my patent doesn't mean anything, why even bother to get a patent? So a lot of countries, they, they, they don't have a heavy number of pat a, a large number of patents because people don't think it's worth it. And so these guys uh, were both from Egypt. They wanted to make a point. They applied for the patent, but you notice it was only in the U.S. and, and Canada, and they, uh, and they won it. And so I think as the world matures, we'll start seeing patents widely distributed around the world. And they wanted to teach new guys, new technologies in their country to file for patents. Now, now Dr. Hatim uh, Zaglul learned about Hedy Lamar. Now, we'd featured Hedy Lamar previously on a Profile in IT. She was an actress who actually invented spread a spectrum. She invented spread spectrum, and she did it. Uh, it was kind of an analogy with a, you know, she was in music, kind of an analogy with a piano keyboard, and you could communicate more information if you could use more keys on the piano. You could have a more complex piece of music. So using that as a sort of the clue, she developed the basic concept for sped, spread spectrum. But And, and actually, she, she proposed it to the U.S. government. The U.S. government uh, actually used her ideas but didn't credit her with that and it became super top secret because it, it allowed them to have uh, – radio signals that could not be intercepted. And she never actually got any money for it. She never got a patent. Her patent was never honored. People, they just used it. And she never made any money on it. Well, Zaglul 
heard about Hedy Lamar. She was still alive. And he called her up and he said, look, I'm going to try to get you some money for your patents. So he signed an agreement with her and, uh, and she gave him 49% rights to her patent. She kept 51% for an undeclosed sum. And he worked until Hetty's death in 2000 to promote her patent and try to, dis- to establish value for her patent so she could get a little bit of money. So I'm really glad that somebody finally did take care of Hetty Lamar because she was not properly compensated for the work that she did on spread spectrum. Now, based on the collaboration with Dr. Uh, Fatouche on super resolution, this is where you can do signal processing to, say, make uh, an antenna uh, beam tighter. Or super resolution, you could take an optical lens and you could find a way to exceed what the normal resolution would be based on diffraction. And based on his work on super resolution with... uh, with, with antennas, Dr. Zaglul founded Cell Lock in 1995, and he developed a, a network of a family of network-based wireless locating product that would be location sensitive, and they could locate people or they could locate assets. And it was just a, a very small portable device, but they got very precise location accuracy with this. And it was, uh, you know, this was really before, you know, be, you know, before GPS became commonly used for that kind of activity. Then in 2016, he started Innovation, Innovation, T-I-A-N, Incorporated, in Giza, Egypt. He, um, he wanted to go back and give back to Egypt. And he said the problem is in uh, developing countries like Africa, Egypt, Internet it's too expensive. People can't afford, you know, a satellite internet. I mean, the, the telecoms just charge way too much money. People can, people can only few, afford a few dollars a month for internet and it's just not affordable. And he wanted to bring internet to the masses at price. So they developed what they called a mesh network. This is for deployment in uh, developing countries and they've already deployed it in some uh, African countries, they deployed it in Pakistan. They've deployed it in Egypt so far. And what it is, it's a it's a mesh uh, that uh, that's made up of Wi-Fi routers. So how they do it? First of all, they um, they actually have a central a computer which is connected to a VSAT terminal, which was a very small. Um, VSAT is basically very small antenna terminal. VSAT. So, and that's connected to the satellite. And so because and they, using signal processing, they could make the small, the, the thing smaller. So they could get a VSAT terminal for as little as $300. And they would set it up in a village, maybe the village chief, put it on his roof. And, um, and then he would get a small amount of revenue for keeping it there based on whatever they collected. And they could, and they could then establish a satellite link to through that VSAT because people don't really need high bandwidth. They just want connect connectivity. And then what he would do, he would connect that VSAT link, uh, with mesh Wi-Fi, where you, there would be a Wi-Fi router there. And then there would be a then he would put around the city 20 Wi-Fi hotspots. And what would happen, they would be meshed together where uh, the signal might go from the VSAT Wi-Fi router to the first 
hotspot. So, so he set up InfoMesh uh, uh, in order to provide low-cost internet for developing countries. And what he would do, he would then, uh, he essentially would uh, set up an internet connection, a satellite internet internet connection using VSAT, which would be very small antenna terminal VSAT, and that would give him internet access. He would connect that to a Wi-Fi router. Then he would set up strategically placed maybe 20 Wi-Fi routers around the city. And these Wi-Fi routers would be connected like a mesh where the signal would go for, to the first router and it would be, and then it would go to the second router, to the third router, and it would, and they would all, the 20 nodes would talk to each other so you could get complete coverage over the whole city simply by having a mesh of 20 nodes. Then he was able to get low-cost cell phones were about $20 a piece, and the folks in town could then buy a $20 cell phone. They could connect to any one of these meshes, and they would be on the Internet through that VSAT connection, and he could pr provide that service for literally uh, pennies a month. So that gave very low-cost access, and that's what he's working on now. This will be a great program for, um, you know, for, for, you know, Africa and developing countries, Egypt, and the, and then all the people that are hosting the mesh nodes or hosting the VSAT terminal get a small percentage of the revenue that comes in from the network. So they're paid for their hosting services. It's a great, a great service. He's, um, he received the, uh, Fraser Milner Cassegrain Pinnacle Award for Entrepreneurial Achievement. He was a finalist for Ernst & Young, Award uh, 97-98. He got the Hall of Fame Award for Broadband Solutions in April of 2000 for his contributions to tech to um, wireless communications. So he has made a significant impact. And most importantly, he managed to make money on it because he patented the thing, unlike Caitlin Carrico, who did not own her patent, who I talked about last week. Yep. So there you go. Everything you wanted to know about... Hatim Azagluo, the uh, best known for development of signal processing techniques that form the basis of Wi-Fi and CDMA. You know, think, uh, Doc, think back to your days in school. Friday afternoon, maybe it's 1.30, 2 o'clock, and you're ready for the week to end, and then mm -hmm. something happens. And the, doc, and the uh, teacher all of a sudden decides it's time for a pop quiz. Yes. Whoa. From Washington, it's the Stratford University Pop Quiz with Andrew Mitchell, Jim Russ, featuring Mr. Big Voice, with musical guest, the Stratford University Junkyard Band, and your host, Dr. Richard Schertz. This is not simply a classroom of the no. airways. This is actually... A, uh, no, this is not simply a radio show. This is a classroom of the airways. See, we caught you off guard, too. Exactly. Therefore, we have to test whether our class has been listening. And we do that with the pop quiz. You get the right answer to the pop quiz, you'll get free tickets to one of our dining rooms once they open after the pandemic. I think we're getting close to that, uh, hopefully. And you'll also get an A-plus for today's show. Earlier in the show, I talked about... Hatim Zagluol, he of course is the uh, the guy that did the signal processing techniques with his buddy on what forms the basis of Wi-Fi and some CDMA standards, cell phone standards. 
Uh, but after he filed his patents, he discovered a particular scientist who had contributed to wireless communication had not received any money for what this person had done. So he went back to try to help this person. Who was this person uh, who he helped? Okay. If you know the answer to today's question, pick up your phone, give us a call. Dialing from west of the Rockies. It's 877-936-9333. If you're standing in the COVID vaccination line east of Plyndale Shirts, Virginia, it's 877-936-9333. If you're frequency hopping in Canada, call us on the wildcard line, 877-936-9333. Anyone else anywhere else may call us on the international line. It's sanitized hourly using Schlumberger brand petroleum-based wipes. You say that twice quickly. 8779-3639-333. Now, once again, here's Dr. Richard Schurz. See, when we do the pop quiz this way, you don't have time during the commercial break to roll the cassette tape back and get the answer. Yes, that's exactly right. Yep. That is exactly right. Yep. Well, let's talk about the trivia of the week. Yes. It's kind of interesting. What city was the first city to have un- municipal Wi-Fi? That's kind of an interesting question. I know I was it wasn't Baltimore. It was not Baltimore. <laughs> yep. That is definitely true. Well, in the early 2000s, major cities around the world were trying to be the first to have a municipal Wi-Fi. And it turns out that Jerusalem <laughs> beat really? everybody to the punch in 2004. And they launched the first, world's first, citywide Wi-Fi network. I was there in Jerusalem last year, and and I had the, the benefit of using it. It was quite nice. Overall, old town, and you could always get uh, get Wi-Fi. Now, trailing Jerusalem by just a few months was Mysore, India. M-Y-S-O-R-E. You think that's how you pronounce that? How about Mysore? <laughs> uh, I, the other one sounds a little bit more exotic. Yes, Mysore, but like Mysore, that. yeah, it's like Mysore, India. They established the second Wi-Fi network, uh, municipal network. Now, and then that was followed quickly by Sunnyvale, California. They were the first in the U.S., and now we got dozens of them. They've got Singapore, Luxembourg, Paris, Venice, Toronto, Denver, Houston, Philadelphia, and not Baltimore. But <laughs> soon, soon we'll have Baltimore, hopefully. Uh, doubtful. <laughs> really doubt it. So let's talk about. Uh, I got a. a oh, wait a minute. A Hang on. on. Hold it. Hold your horses there. We're all off kilter okay. today. We have somebody who'd like to play the game. Let's okay. let's do that. Uh, let's see here. Adjust something. Then we're going to do this. And we're going to go to line one. MC is calling us from Silver Spring. Good morning, MC. Yes, good morning, Jim. Hello there, Doctor. We have a lousy connection, but we're going to try this anyway. Doc, we'll I asked anyway. a question. Yes. Uh, Hatim Azaglul was, of course, he developed the signal processing techniques that are used on Wi-Fi and CDMA cell phone standards. But after he got his patents, he discovered there was another person that didn't get patents for, um, for the work that this person had done. Who was that person? Uh, he was uh, heavy Lamar. Very good. That Excellent. Thank you very much, MC. Appreciate you listening and calling today. We're going to take a break here. This is Tech Talk Radio on Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 103.5 FM HD 2, 103.9 FM HD 2, southwest of D.C. on 107.7 FM HD 2, and in Loudoun County on 104.5 FM. You can follow us on Twitter at WFED Tech Talk and go to stratford.edu to learn more about the programs at Stratford University. Mm-hmm. 
If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Observations from the bunker. Windows. I love that door. Leave the door open today. Let the air in. Yeah, the I place think I need, it's good. You know, it's warming up now, so I think I could leave the door open for a while. Yes. So this week, I started thinking about how students learn. I, I was actually doing faculty development, which I love to do. I, I love to talk to our faculty because they're the ones that actually make a difference in the students' lives. And I was reminded of something that Sugata Mitra said. He's an, an educator from India. He said, students learn, teachers do not teach. Now, you think about this is a profound statement. If you think about a baby, for instance, they teach themselves how to see, how to hear, how to talk, how to walk. They teach themselves. And, uh, and we simply provide the uh, encouragement, the encouragement to let them know they can do it, and they teach themselves. And uh, he's been trying to solve a huge problem, which we have in developing countries, that the trained teachers and sophisticated schools don't exist where we need education the most in the poorest communities. Uh, so how can we overcome that problem? And he started running a series of experiments, a hole-in-the-wall experiments, where he would put uh, computers in a hole in the wall and just leave them there, and they would be connected to the internet, and they would have various tools on them. And he just watched what the kids did with it. And, uh, and through webcams, he would watch them. And he discovered, A, uh, using voice recognition tools on the, on the computer, they started teaching themselves English. Huh. And, the, and, and, when they, and when they learned English, they didn't have the British accent. They had the computer accent. They, <laughs> they talked with the same accent. So as the as the English in in, in the computer, they had a homogenized um, uh, computer generated type voice. That's interesting. Did That's they right. sound and, and like they, this? They, 
Exactly. Well, no, it was it was more like if you listen to the voice on, say, Microsoft Windows, it's kind of a generic voice. There's no particular accent. Mm -hmm. It's not it's not like a computerized voice, but it's a generic no accent voice. Ah. And uh, and uh, see, if you ever listen to somebody who's learned English in India, they have this Indian accent because mm -hmm. they were probably taught by somebody who was Indian who was teaching them English. And so they learn a particular accent, a way of, a way of talking. And uh, then they, I mean, they could learn Microsoft Word and then they, they, lear they learned how to use the software. So then he got, he decided, well, let's, let's put on some advanced microbiology like DNA, RNA, that sort of stuff, college level material. So he put all the resources on the, uh, the computers, all the links and the browser so they could go there. And the kids started studying it. They started looking at it and, and, uh, and they, uh, they started learning. He went back after three months and they, uh, you know, they, they said, well, you know, it's kind of hard to learn. We don't understand this RNA yet, but we're trying to figure it out. And they just worked on it and worked on it. And then the older kids would teach the younger kids, younger kids to stand on step tools to try to learn it was really peer to peer tutoring. And he gave them a test, uh, on, uh, on this advanced microbiology. It was a college level test and they got 25% on it. The kids, 50% is passing. So he said, well, I'm going to have to get a tutor in here. So there, he noticed one woman was there who, uh, who was um, always with the kids, and they trusted her. He said, well, I'd like you, you know, to be the teacher for this class. But she says, I don't know anything about microbiology. I don't even know what DNA is. No, he said, you just stand, you just encourage them. So she stood there with the kids, and she'd say, wow, you guys are smarter than I ever was at your age. I cannot believe how smart you are. I could not do half of what you're doing now. You guys must be the smartest kids in the world. <laughs> now, have you ever heard how a grandmother talks about their grandchild? Oh, yeah. Oh, my grandchild walked before any baby on the block. They're using a computer like so fast you can't believe. My grandchild, smartest grandchild in the world. You've all heard this. Uh-huh. So... This technique that this young woman used, she was in her early 20s, he named it the grandmother effect. And it turns out that if you give unconditional support to students and believe in them, their, excel, they, their learning accelerates. And after a year, he came back and gave them a test, this college level test, they scored 50% passing with no teacher. They taught themselves. And so this was where he found out that students learn, teachers don't teach. Now, since he's developed a worldwide web of grandmothers and so it, who, who want to do this for kids. And so if somebody's in a remote location and you don't have somebody that can stand there and, and encourage you, you've got an online grandmother that can tell you, the, that tell you that how good you are. And so he's got this worldwide web of people trying to do this thing. And his goal is to de deliver education to where it's needed most. So th this is really the inspiration on how, on how Stratford teaches. You do it through projects. I, I mean, have you ever been to a lecture that's just bone boring? I once took an advertising class with somebody who was a radio personality in Baltimore, and he was a talk show host. And I thought it was going to be the most interesting class ever. He did nothing the entire semester but read from the book verbatim. Yeah, th this is the problem. And so, you know, and so teachers think they, they just have to, uh, you know, deliver facts. And like they're opening up your head and pouring in the facts. No, it doesn't work that way. Uh, 
And so, uh, but, but here's the thing. Education comes from the root Latin word educare, educare, which means to draw forth, to draw forth, mm-hmm. not to stuff in. And so what you have to do to draw forth is you simply give the student an opportunity to do something themselves. And you stand back as kind of the coach saying, oh, you know, suggested this, have you done this? So project-centric work uh, that is self-directed work by the student with the teacher providing the grandmother effect is the most effective way to learn. And it's fun. It's fun. I mean, when I went to college, if I had a te- see, in, in my day in college, it didn't take attendance. So, uh, you know, if, if I had a teacher that just droned on, I didn't go to class. I'd yeah. just go for the test because yep. I can read the book as well as he can. <laughs> and so uh, I just I would just go there. But if I had a teacher that was engaging and teaching and used critical thinking and engaged the class in conversations and problem solving, everything else, I wouldn't miss a minute. And so um, I did learn this early on. And so we're trying to you know, weed ourselves from the lecture. Now you need a certain amount of lecture to get foundational concepts, but we quickly move into, into projects and that's really the key. So when I do faculty development in India, you know, India is a, is a, um, is a country of meditation. So we, we, we would do faculty development, a meditation center right out of New Delhi. And we would do things like have the teachers sit down and meditate on this thought. Students learn, teachers don't teach. And they would meditate on that for 20 minutes. Then they would come out of the meditative state and they would write in a journal what they learned. And so we were using meditation as a way to do teacher training. But the fact is the teachers were training themselves by reflecting on the right thought. So this is, I think education has got to change this way. I think the lecture has got to go. It's boring. Yeah. So there you go. Observations from the bunker Thoughts that were stimulated by Sugata Mitra. By the way, Sugata Mitra has got a lot of good TED Talks. Sugata Mitra, his last name is M-I-T-R-A. Look him up on TED. You'll really uh, love it. Doc, Let's I think talk we'll, we'll yes. just stay here for the rest of the hour. How does that sound? I think that sounds like a very, a very good idea. The app of the week. Let's do that. Okay. Now, you know, the FCC, Federal Communication Commission, they've been going out to the Internet service providers, and they, and they were just saying, would you tell us how fast your internet access is so we can put it in a database and get a map of internet speeds around the country? So they've been collecting this self-provided data from the telecoms for years. And lo and behold, they discovered that the telecom providers were exaggerating, that actually their actual speeds were not quite that fast. (laughs) Who would have thought that? (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. So the you know we you know there's this speed test system thing that I like to use from OCLA OCLA I use that but so the FCC came out with their own speed test it's called the FCC speed test and you can download it from the App Store on either your Android phone or your iPhone you download the FCC speed test that's the name of it and every time you take a speed test it automatically uploads the data to the FCC. So what they're trying to do is get everybody to use the FCC speed test so then they can get actual speed data rather than reported speed data from the telcos. So for that reason, this is the app of the week, the FCC speed test. Would you actually use this, or do you feel like this is invasive? I've been using it all week, yeah. Okay, 
I've been using it all. Now, what's interesting, I'm trying to figure it out. The FCC speed test result is actually a little bit slower than the one I get on the speed test that I'm using. Mm -hmm. uh, it's about 20% slower, and I'm trying to figure out why. So I'm still doing research on that, but it is slightly slower than the speed test that I'm using otherwise. Interesting. Uh, uh, here's the tip of the week. This is really interesting. You can send confidential email uh, through Gmail. They have a confidential mode. Now, what happens is that in the confidential mode, the uh, uh, user gets the email, but the message is not attached to the email. It says, click on this link to see the message. And then what you do is you send a text message to their cell phone with a code. When they click on that message, uh, they have to enter in the, um, the, uh, the, the code that they get with their cell phone, and only then can they see the message. So that way, if somebody would like hack somebody else's email and, uh, and, you, and they, they can't see this email because they don't have the, uh, the two-factor authorization, the, the, um, the, the code. So if you want to do this, if you want to do, do this particular confidential email, this is something new that they've got, which is, which is kind of nice. You simply... You know, click on you, uh, you have to, you, you you have to use the Gmail web client you, uh, or the or the Gmail app. You can't use an Outlook app that that uses that, that just has Gmail as one of the email accounts. It's got to be the real Gmail app or the um, or you got to be in the web version of Gmail, which is what I use. And then you simply uh, open up a new message, and then you uh, open up a new message, and then you put in the uh, Put in somebody's name, and write your message, and down at the bottom, down at the bottom, you'll see a little uh, little lock, uh, which is the uh, confidential. So you click on that lock, and then another another screen comes up, and then it says, "Okay, you want to send uh, the the uh, the confidential message," and you can have it expire. You can say it can expire in one week, or you could go all the way up to three years. So it expires, and so once it expires, they can't see it anymore. So you click on how long you want it to exist, and then you can choose send an SMS or send an email. Well, it's kind of stupid to send an email because you're sending the validation code to the same email address that you're trying to protect. So I'd say send an SMS. As soon as you say you're going to send an SMS, you've got to put in the phone number of the people. And then you do that, send it, and then they can get it right away. It works really well. And the other nice thing is you can actually cancel the email and they can't see it. Listen, we love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu. We'll get back to you as soon as we can. And also, go to the Stratford University website, www.stratford.edu, and tell them that you heard about all of those great programs on Tech Talk Radio. Tech Talk Radio is sponsored by Stratford University. For more information on courses at Stratford University, call 1-800-444-0804. Thanks for listening to Tech Talk Radio Online.